reading and preaching for you today out of Hebrews chapter 13. As we finish up this final chapter of this book, I'll be reading and preaching for you out of verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words, these instructions and admonitions and encouragement to how to live in light of the reign of Jesus Christ. Help us to carry all that we have been taught from these first 12 chapters of Hebrews that we would take all of these great realities of the superiority of Jesus Christ and his reign and now live them out in reflection of him to this world and to one another. Help us, Father, to be found faithful in responding to your instruction today. And may your Holy Spirit fill us up that we may live this out in righteousness and faithfulness to him. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When we get to here and now in chapter 13, we see a significant change in style and in posture of how the writing and the teaching and the preaching. Everything that we've been hearing up to before has this very homiletic Um, preaching kind of um, posture that is preaching this great lofty reality of the reign of Jesus Christ. In fact, what we had just gone over last week uh, with chapter 12, the ending of chapter 12, is probably most some of the most unbelievable language that we see in the scriptures of the reality of where we are right now in the redemptive history of mankind, that we have this great and heavenly kingdom That we are, when we come together and worship him, that we are among angels. Now when I say that it's almost one of the most unbelievable passages, I'm not saying that it's unbelievable because the Lord is not trustworthy or that it's something that's beyond our ability to actually follow and to trust. But it's so great and so lofty. I would say that for most Christians today, and maybe through most Christians throughout the history of mankind, and particularly maybe even for these Christians that are receiving the letter foremost and first from the writer to the Hebrews, that it would be hard to comprehend of that great reality that Jesus Christ has accomplished in his reign. 
That as we've learned everything from how everything of the temple and the tabernacle were shadows is now come to a full reality of what Jesus is doing now before the Father. And that we are standing at the threshold waiting to finally enter the fullness of his rest. But what are we to do right here and now if we are in the middle of the doorway of the great end of all things that we are able to be in a place where we are going to be in full dwelling with the Lord, what is our occupation? What is our response to that? And so I hope that as we go into chapter 13 today, that you will remember everything that has been preached to you since we began the book of Hebrews, which is a lot to try to to remember all those things. And so we probably ought to have to go back and read through it over and over again. I would say that would be one thing that we would want to do to encourage ourselves. In fact, we know here that the writer to the Hebrews says that he's teaching us briefly. You'll see this later on in chapter 13 that it's really been a brief exhortation of the realities of what Jesus Christ has accomplished. This particular part of this letter is more of an epistle more of almost a bullet point instruction for us, but it is not to be separated from everything else. Some people might even say that this kind of looks like it's a whole nother book or maybe even kind of an appendix of what is actually in the main part of the book of Hebrews. And I would say, no, it is actually still a part of the same flow. We are now left with this standing here and looking at this great reality that Jesus Christ is reigning and that our identity and who we are is now dwelling amongst the fullness of the Father and that we have this great assembly of other believers and of other creatures like angels that are in worshiping of him. What are we to be doing? Well, one, it would seem like we would need to continue to be amongst one another in worship because that is something we would want to do is to be amongst that assembly as often as we can. But how are we to live our life in that reality? I mean, can you imagine going after last Sunday? I don't know if any of y'all did this. I thought he did. I didn't do this. Well, actually, I did. I did talk to a couple of my friends at work in this kind of manner. But to go in to say, hey, this past weekend, I was worshiping with angels. I was worshiping with people who have died and who are in heaven and whose souls have been made righteous and perfect. Most people would think, and you're a little loony. But that's the reality. That is the reality of what the Bible says. It's not my idea. I wasn't saying, well, our church is so great and our service is so great. That's what it's like. No, I'm saying that Christ's church Throughout the world, that when we are assembled together with him, that is the reality, according to the word of God, the present reality of what kind of kingdom we have received. Let me just remind you here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28, just preceding where we were or where we are currently in 13. It says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. This word receiving is an active verb. It means that we are continuing to receive this kingdom. We have not received it in its fullness. We are not there in heaven with the Lord. We're in that threshold of receiving this kingdom. And therefore, our response should be foremost, worshiping the Lord with reverence and awe. Not with silliness and goofiness, but with reverence and all. 
We should be one, making our worship service matching that reality. One of the reasons why people would find us to be loony if we told people that we are worshiping a living God, a Savior and King who reigns over the world presently over all things, and that we are worshiping with those who have come before us and who have died and now have, made, have been made righteous and full, and that we are worshiping with the angels. The reason why that reality would be such a contrast to our understanding today is because a lot of our worship services lack that kind of reverence and awe. A lot of our worship services, we don't think about that. And a lot of our lives are not in the context. That is what we are to live in. This is why we are worshiping the Lord in the first day of the week. Our whole lives should be defined by that great reality that this is the king that we worship and that we are amongst, in reality, this great assembly. Let us go back a little few more in verses 22 to 23. It says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. See, I'm not making that up. If somebody says, you are, you've lost your mind, you can say, well, that's what the word of God says. That is the reality. And the writer to the Hebrews wanted the people to understand the reality of Christ's superiority, but also the reality of our worship with him so that they may endure the difficulty of life. So that they may have peace in this day of trouble. I think I've shared with you already that there at the YMCA, that the swimming pool has a Bible verse. And every day that I've been swimming in the past three weeks, I stare at that verse over and over again because it, at least it lets me feel like I'm doing something productive as I'm dying of the loss of my breath. I'm sitting there like, and I'm like, at least I'm, I'm not just dying, I'm reading God's word. But I've studied that verse over and over again. And it says, I have told you these things. And just as I think about this book, he has told us these things so that in me, you will have peace. The writer to the Hebrews, which is ultimately the voice of God here for us, is telling us these things so that we may have peace. He's telling us of these realities so that we may have peace. Because in the world, in the world, we will have trouble. So it's contrasting. In Christ, we have peace. For in the world we will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That is the reality of everything we see here coming to culmination in chapter 12. And then now, here we are, we go into chapter 13, and probably passages that you are very familiar with, instructions and admonitions that you are very familiar with, but do we consider these things in light of that great reality of what is occurring in the heavens, but also in our worship, in the reality of our worship now, and in the realities of his reign over all things. I pray that today, by the time we go through these six verses, these very compact passages, that you will always remember these instructions and these admonitions in light of that great reality. 
Because they're not to be severed. In fact, they're not possible. Apart from that great reality of Christ's reign. Because he is who empowers these things to even be achievable. It's what makes it different from we're not just some kind of mercy organization when we consider some of the things that we are instructed in here. We are kingdom furtherers for the purposes of Christ's reign. They are only empowered by the work that Christ has done and for therefore the purposes of the furthering of his reign. They're not here to teach us how to make some kind of temporal gain to help people out who are suffering. All of these things are for the purposes of furthering his kingdom. What we have here is an English translation from Greek, and it's actually more wordy than what the Greek actually says. The Greek has these things compacted in and that we did not have English words that could help us understand the fullness of them. So we had to get a little more wordy. If you go and you look at the Greek, there's fewer counts of words. They're able to compress all these things and it's almost quick bullet points. And so you may think these six verses are very short, but in reality, they're actually shorter. And so if you got really good at learning Greek, you might have even a deeper and better understanding, but the English translation is trying to help us here. The very first admonition that we have here is simply let brotherly love continue. And they have a word for that. Philadelphia. A lot of people know that that's why, you know, because Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And there's a reason for that is because it is derived from this. If you go and read the original Greek manuscripts, you'll see the word Philadelphia. I think you only see maybe two or three words in the Greek. And the word Philadelphia is combining this word brotherly love. And it's important for us to remember everything that we've learned in the first 12 chapters about what it is to be the brother of Jesus Christ and his love for us. And so when we're considering the superiority of Christ's love for us and that he is our super big brother, we are now being a reflection of Jesus Christ in continuing to live that brotherly love with one another. And what our job is doing in that threshold before we finally enter fully in the presence of God is that we are to reflect the reality of what's going on in the brotherly love that we receive from Jesus. We are to reflect it with one another in the assembly, and particularly those in this context and those who are dealing with suffering and doubt and difficulty. And we are to reflect it to the world, to everyone who is behind us. We are like this magnification of light that we are seeing in the reality and that what we are beginning to experience in our knowledge and relationship with Christ, we are reflecting that light to one another and to the whole world. And so it has to be in light of the great light of his reality. It's not just an encouragement for us to be good to each other. It's not just an encouragement for us to have just some kind of generic love for each other. It is to have a brotherly love for each other based upon the love of our big brother, Jesus Christ. So we have the word Philadelphia there. And if you had the Greek in front of you, you would see another word called philozenius. Does anybody know what the Greek word philozenius means? Does anybody know what the word xenia means? 
Uh, how many of you are thinking about flowers right now? So everything about flowers? There's some, is there still some zinnias around the corner over there? They're kind of getting weak. Jennifer said she just harvested her last um, harvest of zinnias. And it's funny, I, I, I researched this because I, that is what I was thinking too when I was looking at the Greek word phylozinia. That actually zinnias, the flower, has a reputation of being a flower for encouraging continual steadfast love, hospitable love. When you go and you Google the meaning of zinnias, you will see that. And the irony of it is, is that it has nothing to do with the Greek word. <laughs> it's just kind of a reputation that it's had for people who may have heard the word zinnia, and then they were, heard the other, the Greek word zinnia, and they go, oh, must be something to do with that. It's kind of like what I was joking about during the Reformation Day, that German chocolate cake is not really German. I know that's really disheartening for some of you all. The guy who actually came up with the type of sweet chocolate that is used in German chocolate cake, his last name was German. He was actually English. <laughs> who would have thought? But keep making German chocolate cake on Reformation Day because it's really good. <laughs> and so zinnias really don't have anything to do with that, but the word zinnia does mean hospitable love. And it's nice that there's a flower that would remind us of that. But may it be that this particular word, it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Again, those are just two or three words in the Greek. It's philozenia, that there's a stranger love, but it's, it's a love that's not separate from hospitality. And I know that most of us, when we think about the word hospitality, we think of what? Having people over for what? Food, <laughs> you know, having a meal together, right? Showing some kind of hospitality. We are serving, and that's a good thing. I mean, that's definitely something that's in even in the, it's in the context of what we see that the Lord does for us. But we have this this context of how it is for those that are stranger, for for the other, for people that are maybe not as familiar. That here we have this brotherly love, this love that is amongst those that we are more familiar with. As we consider Christ's familiarity with us and how he is our brother and how we consider our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now there's this extenuation that's still kind of in the context of brotherliness. But for the stranger to go to those who are more removed from us and maybe from people that are not only people we don't know or understand but maybe even people that are people we're not comfortable with. I think of a story in light of this particular context here we have. It says, do not neglect to show hospitalities to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. When we think about that particular passage, we're foremost, we're remembering Abraham when he met the Lord amongst the three. And we're like, who are the three? And we know that there must have been angels there with him. And we know that there was things that he was doing as he was showing hospitality with food to the Lord, that he was actually showing hospitality in a time of, of judgment, in a time of they were on their way to Sodom, if you remember, and how he had to um, intercede and ask for some mercy for those at Sodom, very much like Moses did for the whole of, of Israel 
that this was in the context of judgment. And we are to carry that same component with us that there are there's this negative darkness that is here. And then we see in verse three, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. We see that there is this pressing down. There is this dark cloud that we are to remember to do this hospitality in light of pending judgment and difficulty. We, if you remember in the book of Hebrews, just about every chapter is always reminding us that we are in the end time and that there is a wrapping up of the end to come. So when we think about hospitality here, it's not just this fun time. It's a showing hospitality in the context of difficulty. Now you're like, well, we don't have any famine or war or any harsh persecution right now. We have some elevating persecution occurring. But we are still raging in a time of sin and fleshliness our own fleshliness and others. And the instruction that we have is not only are we supposed to have this brotherly love with one another, that we are to show hospitality to those who are of the other, of the stranger, of the, the, maybe those that we would not normally be around, and maybe even our enemy. We know that Jesus tells us in Matthew 25, that whatever we do to the least of these, that we do to him, not only are we potentially serving those who might be angels, but the Lord perceives that whenever we show hospitality to the least of these, we are showing hospitality to him. This reminds me of a story that Jennifer told me about, some of you may be familiar with um, Pearl S. Buck. She is a, um, a uh, author, a renowned um, author. She won a Pulitzer Prize and a Nobel Peace Prize in literature. Um, and she was a daughter of missionaries at the turn of the century of the 1800s into the 1900s. And she grew up in China. She was born in West Virginia, but when she was like three or four months old, they took her on to China, and she grew up in China on the mission field. And when we're, you know, today we're thinking about the Voices of the Martyrs International Day of Prayer and those who are persecuted. This story came to mind, and I feel like her story kind of embodies this remembrance of those who are mistreated throughout the world, but also the right kind of response in the midst of that mistreatment. She was the daughter of Andrew and Carrie Seidenstricker, which is another German name, which I think though they were actually Dutch. And like I said, they were missionaries to China. They were Presbyterian missionaries to China. And unfortunately, Andrew, um, he had maybe a bit of a naive um, posture toward his reception there in China. And so he would often leave his family to go out and pass tracks and to do mission work. And one time he had left his family behind and it was in the middle of a drought. It was a very harsh summer and they were not getting any rains. People were seeing their crops just wither up and die. 
And there were people in the community that were a part of, that would come to their church, but all of a sudden they started noticing that people stopped coming to their services. There was one particular person who had befriended them, this lady, and at one time she was the only one there. No one else came to worship them. And, and so Carrie Seidenstricker, the wife, started wondering what's going on. And then one day she overheard some Chinese talking, and they were blaming them for the famine. They were saying, because they have come in, as soon as they came in, two things happened in our community. One, the famine began, and also all these foreigners had started moving into the area, and they were blaming Pearl's family for this. And then she heard that they plan to kill them so that it will start to rain. Their friend, who was amongst the Chinese community, went out to see if this was true. And then she came back and she said, it is true. And they plan to kill you tonight. And so what Carrie did, she first she prayed to the Lord. She pled to the Lord that, um, that the Lord would spare them. And that if anything, that she would be able to have peace during this time. And that she also even prayed. And if you think about it, I hope this is something that none of you ever have to think about. She actually prayed that their children would die first. So they would not have to suffer what they were about to face. Can you imagine being in that kind of situation where your particular calling and your love for your own family would actually ask the Lord to be merciful to let your children die first, just so they wouldn't have to experience torture or suffering. And so she was in dismay and sadness. And then all of a sudden, the thing that she prayed for kind of went overboard. She prayed for peace, but then she had actually indignation and anger. She was like, I don't want to die. I'm not going to just, just let this happen. So she, she started to get angry and got riled up. She got stirred up, maybe like the stirred up that we see there in Hebrews chapter 4 or chapter 10. Got stirred up. And she said, I'm not just going to let this happen simply. Now, some of you, if you were like me now, if you heard someone's coming to your house that's planning on killing you and your children, it's time to lock and load, Right? You know what she did? She set a table. She told her friend to go make some tea, to prepare food, to prepare a meal. And then there was a gate, and she heard when she was overhearing them talk about coming and killing, they were going to break through the gate and come after them. She goes out to the gate and opens the gate. And she sees, or she doesn't, she doesn't say anything, but she sees them in the dark as they're about to come in. And they kind of step back in the dark even more. And she doesn't even pay them attention. She just opens the door and she goes back in. She gets the children and gathers them together. She gives them toys to play with. She creates an atmosphere that's very welcoming. She actually gave them what they call the Sunday toys because I guess they got certain special toys to play with on Sunday. She created an atmosphere of rest. And hospitality and welcome them in to her home. Now, of course, this story, and you know, is going to have a good end. I, 
I wouldn't want to tell a story like this that would end up bad. And, and not every story and probably a, a large number of stories would not end this way. But her posture was correct when she welcomed them in. They came in and they were dumbfounded behind her display of hospitality. Her display of hospitality was not only toward the stranger, but toward the enemy. And then some of them said, there's nothing to do here. I'm going to leave. And some of them left. Some of them, watching the children play, came over and put their hand on the heads of the children to play with their hair and played with them and laughed. And then finally said, there's nothing here to do. And they survived. She fought with hospitality. That's the kind of hospitality that we are called to have. Not because it's just a really good story. Not just because it's reverse psychology. But that's what Jesus Christ has done for us. We might think that when Jesus invites us, when we look at the tabernacle and the temple, and we think, well, we're these poor and weak and needy people, and we're coming to the Lord, and we're like, Lord, please let us in, let us well and eat with you. No, we are like those Chinese who are his enemy, that seek to take his kingdom for ourselves. See, it's a battle of kingdoms. It's either thy kingdom or my kingdom. We need to understand that Jesus didn't come out to adore a bunch of people who were begging to come in because we love him so much. We are like the Chinese who seek to see his kingdom in so that our kingdom may reign. Now, the wonderful miracle of that story is that that night, as they left, she began to hear the wind and she began to hear a roar, and she began to hear the rain. The Lord showed mercy upon that land because of the hospitality of that particular family. And so this is the context of what we have here. When we read these words and when we see what's going on in Hebrews, that this is not just some kind of, this is how to be good to each other, how to be kind to each other. No, this is a reflection of that very reality of what Christ is doing at the right hand of the Father when he is inviting his people in, his enemies in. He is overcoming us with his love. He is defeating us. And our kingdoms and our sin with his love. And so that's why when he calls us, he's telling all these things. When we go to Matthew 25, it's in the context of judgment. It's in the context of his coming in. It's the context of the great throne in which he's sitting in. So when we read about whatever you do to the least of these, we need to remember that this is in the context of his final judgment in his throne. I'll read it for you. The king will say to those on the right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Does it sound like what we see here in Hebrews chapter 13? It's a almost carbon copy. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when do we see you, a stranger, and welcome you 
or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. We have to understand that the posture of the king has been overtaken his enemies from the very beginning. Is what was promised in Genesis. That he is going to overtake the serpent. And so he's going to overtake the sin that is in the heart of those who have been promised to him since the foundation of the world. This is the posture of the king. Is to defeat his enemies one way or the other. Either he's going to make them his children or he is going to defeat them fully for eternity. And so our posture, since we don't know... (laughs) who are his and who are not his, that are living now or in the future, we are to be postured in that way, especially to the brethren, who are the least of these, but really also to our enemies. Because we don't know if this is another part of the body of Christ. You ever thought about the people who are your greatest adversaries in your life? Maybe it's a political adversary. Maybe it's people who are preaching ideology that you don't like. Or maybe it's someone in your family you just can't stand or somebody you work with. Or maybe it's people in our community that maybe are opposed. Maybe it's whoever it is. These, if they are (laughs) promised to him, they will be defeated into his goodness. He will overcome their sin. He will make them his brothers. And we are to treat them like this because they may be a part of the body of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. Again, in the context of the end, the end of all things are at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. There we have it showed to us that, you know, when we think of hospitality, we usually think about, let's invite our friends over. You know, we're having a couple of families over today, and they're fun families. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's not going to be hard to have them over. But what the kind of hospitality that we're called to do here is the kind that would tempt us to grumbling. Now, we may grumble in, with one another and trying to clean the house and get all that kind of stuff together, and we shouldn't be grumbling like that either. But the kind of hospitality that we're called to show is to be in the context of those that's going to cause us this, to die to ourself. We are called to have this kind of mindset, to remember, to remember the prisoners, to remember the mistreated, because they are a part of the body of Christ. And we are to remember them as if we are with them, because we are not disjointed from our body. My hand doesn't float down the road by itself. We are connected, at least I hope it doesn't. I hope I don't cut it off and it has to go somewhere else. We don't, we're not disjointed, we're apart. And so the people who are in Nepal, the people who are next door over here that know the Lord, and the people who we don't even know if they know the Lord, but they may come to know the Lord, are a part of the body of Christ. We are to have that posture Remembering that the full, true body of Jesus Christ is before the Father, and therefore our identity is there. And as he is bringing his body together for final unity, we are to have that kind of posture. So not only do we think about today as we worship 
God, with one another, of this great reality. When we see other people, there's only two kinds of people out there. The people who are the body of Christ and the people who are not. Now, just because they're in a church or claiming to be a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that they're truly a part of the body of Christ. And just because they're not a Christian or a part of a church doesn't mean that they won't become ultimately a part of the body of Christ. But that's how we are to be thinking about one another in light of that reality of where we stand in that threshold. That was the purpose of Pearl S. Buck's family or mother in this case. Not only was she wasn't just doing this because it was a neat trick, but she knew the hospitality of the Lord and exuded to do that. That was the true way of being a minister to those around. I'm not saying you can't defend yourself with weapons. Believe me, I believe in self-defense. But the outward display of our hospitality and life should be things that are so much in contrast for self, to self-preserving, especially the self-preserving of our own little K kingdoms. So we need to be thinking about our posture to remember, not to neglect to remember, not to neglect to be active. We should have prayerful consideration in that way. But let me encourage you in this one more thing. Not only are we to remember each other in this way, not only are we to pray for each other in this way, but this word hospitality is an active instruction, an active verb instruction. And I want to encourage you particularly, just this one area, there's a lot of different ways that you can do this, but I want to encourage you right now to consider doing this in light of your conversation. I think it is here where we need to practice the most. I think it is here where we have the opportunity to practice the most, is to show hospitality in our conversations. We have such an ability to be able to Use our words just to stay at the surface. But when we think about our words, our words is what reflects God maybe the most. If you think about how God communicates to us, he communicates by word. Jesus Christ is called the word of God. And so God's way of showing his hospitality is not only in the reality of what he is doing physically and heavenly, but it is also in his words. Our words should reflect that same magnificence of Christ as well. And so our conversations should be hospitable. So one, our posture should be thinking about one another as brothers and sisters of Christ or potential brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our words should be in light of that. Do our words promote and proclaim and show light more on temporal things than the eternal realities? Do we encourage and talk about and consume our time primarily with passing things or the things that are truly in our soul's hearts? Maybe we don't know what to say. Well, we can ask questions. One of the things that we want to do, and we think about how Jesus, when he had conversations with people in the gospel, he would ask questions. That's one of the things that's very difficult, I think, for people to do nowadays. We 
are good with answering questions sometimes, unless you're getting too personal. But we don't know how to ask the right questions. Now, of course, you don't want to get overly personal. Like, hey, buddy, how you doing? What wicked sins are you involved in right now? Now, I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad idea. (laughs) But I'm just saying that's not going to be necessarily the, the best kind of way to start your conversation. Maybe you should get to that eventually sometime. The fact that maybe you have relationships where that's never talked about is really maybe a mark against us. But we need to become better at showing hospitality by wanting to get to know. If you think about the fact that we're showing hospitality to strangers, strangers are people that we don't know, right? So sometimes we even know people that we don't know. We don't know the things about them. We just have this kind of surface introduction and this is as far as we ever get and everybody's happy and peaceful and fine and nothing really goes one way or the other, good or bad, because we're really good at just staying here on the surface. But the Lord teaches us to show hospitality to strangers and one way to show hospitality to strangers is to have conversations that invoke asking questions because you want to get to know each other. You want to know how to pray for each other. You want if we're called to carry one another's burdens, you need to get to the point where you're able to understand what those burdens are. I mean, when we think about when we look at this passage and especially in light of today's focus of the persecuted Christians, we sometimes we like the idea of carrying the burdens for somebody who's on the other side of the world like in Nepal. It's like, you know what? I'm going to pray for that person in Nepal. I'm going to send money to voices of the martyr, voice of the martyrs. I'm going to send money to missionaries. I might even go on a mission trip myself to help people. Maharus and I have been talking about going to Nepal actually this summer. We actually talked about that a little bit. It's kind of interesting that that was the focus of prayer today. But we have people around us that we don't even know how to have conversation with and show hospitality to. I think it's very hypocritical of us if we spend a lot of time on doing the things that have some kind of extraordinary spotlight on it that we're never really going to have the opportunity probably to ever get to another level other than just knowing their name. And we're not willing to actually consider one another that we live with and walk around with on a daily basis and to stretch ourselves to take it to the next level. Here we're told to consider those who are in prison, those who are suffering mistreatment. But do we know what things are... Friends are captive to right now. Paul speaks of his flesh as something that causes him to do things he doesn't want to do. And he's looking forward to the finalization of that redemption in Christ when he is freed from this corruption of flesh. That means that most of us are probably struggling with something. And we need to remember that we are called to be standing with them as if we are in, the, in that same suffering with them, that they are part of the body that's dealing with some kind of suffering. It may not be a sin. It may be mistreatment from someone else's sin. It may be just some kind of physical pain. You know, all those things are true, but we need to know each other to the point where we can carry those burdens as if it is ourselves because we're to love one another as we love ourselves. And so we need to have conversation with each other So we can know how to pray and to carry those burdens and to point one another to Christ in his word on how to deal with those things. 
You know, the amazing thing, I know Rachel's experienced this too, and when you do counseling training, Christian counseling training, and you go through all the scriptures, there's nothing in the scriptures that have identified, you know, how the paragraphs have some kind of explanation of what the paragraph's going to be. None of, there's nowhere in the scripture that it says, this passage is really good for Christian counselors. There's not anywhere in the scripture that says that. I know that Richard's done a lot of studying of biblical counseling as well. There's nothing in the Bible that even talks about that. You know why? Because the things that are in the scriptures that, are, that Christian counselors use, that posture of conversation and walking with each other, that's for all Christians. <laughs> that's for everyone. And there are some who are better at it and they're gifted at it. I'm not saying that there's not a good role for there to be actual Christian counselors but the admonition and the instruction that Christian counselors used in their methods of Christian counseling was given to the whole church. It's given to everyone. Because everybody is in some kind of relationship with somebody where it can be used. You might be only talking to one or two people in your life with that kind of posture. You might have 20 or 30 people in your life. You may be a Christian counselor. You may write books. There's all kinds of different gifts and abilities that are distributed, but the posture of that kind of dialogue and that kind of conversation and that kind of pointing to people to hope is for all Christians. And that means you have to have conversation. <laughs> and you have conversation with each other every day. So we need to have that kind of mindset for each other so that we can not only remember people from other places, but we can practice it here so that we can consistently be doing it together in faithfulness. I'm going to actually cut my sermon short there. I feel like, I think, that, I mean, I think we need to, to chew on that for a little bit. I was actually going to go into the next couple of verses there, and I, and I think they kind of merge in really well, but I think I'll, I'll save that for next Sunday. But I want us to remember that this posture, again, is for us because this is the posture that Jesus has for us. If we go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 13, it says, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call them brothers. And remember this whole admonition of brotherly love. Saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. We see that Jesus Christ is the one who was ahead of us in this. That he is not ashamed to call who were his enemies to now call them brothers. That's why he is not ashamed. Because we are shameful. There are good reasons for him to be ashamed of us. We botch all of these things all the time. We are sin and corrupt. But it says that Jesus, because of what he has accomplished... He is not ashamed to call the shameful to actually call them brothers. That's what kind of love that he has manifested upon us. 
And so look at what he does. Let's just follow his instruction. Think about it in light of the Hebrews. He says, I will tell of your name, the Father's name, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Jesus Christ assembles his people and assembles with his people in praises to him. Every single Christian should be assembled together with others and singing praises to him. If you say you hold to Jesus, but you're not going to assemble, then you're probably not holding to Jesus because Jesus is with his people. Jesus is with his congregation. Jesus is amongst his congregation singing praises to the Father. And then it says here, and again, I will put my trust in him. Now, this is Jesus. Remember, this is Jesus. He puts his trust in his Father's word and promises. So when we're thinking about these conversations and this hospitality, we are to do so with the posture that we are trusting him in the midst of adversaries, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of famine, in the midst of sickness. We're putting our trust in him. He has done this. Therefore, we can do this and we can get together with the children of God that he has given to the son and we can point each other Constantly back to Jesus Christ. How are we going to point people to Jesus Christ if we're not talking about Jesus Christ? That's why our conversations require us to talk about the reality of what Jesus is and who he is and what he is doing now. He did this as a fruit and a fulfillment on the cross. When he died for our sins and he rose from the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the father. Remember, this is where we're at right now. He's with the father. He's accomplished all these things. And now he's saying the children of God be a reflection to one another. The first way we do that is through repentance and faith. The next way we do that It's through worship and singing his praise. And then the next way we do that is simply these things we see here in verses one through six. We continue to do these things. We neglect not to show hospitality. We remember these people. We remember one another in the fight in which we're in together because he is victorious and he remembers us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great realities.